For the rest of you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would. As we do that, just my special thanks to Alex, as he's very thoughtful as he pulls the songs out. I, I hope that the, the uh, song Hosanna didn't pass you by and that you sang the words without thinking. Take my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you've loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I have for kingdom cause. Is that your prayer? I hope that's your prayer now. You sang that a few minutes ago, but certainly that is a very scriptural point of view, perspective to bring into daily life, to make thy priori- the priorities that we have in our lives to be the Lord's. And so thank you, Alex, for leading us in worship and truth connected to the scripture. God's plan for a healthy church is our study. It is going to incorporate the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Particularly, we are, as we work our way through, we see uh, Apostle Paul coming through this, uh, coming to this church by letter form that he pastored for 18 months and addressing things that have taken them away from the healthiness that the Lord would desire. In particular, we're in purity. Uh, That's chapter 5, the problem of immorality. And I would say as we begin this message that these messages rely heavily on one another. It's a series of three that got us, it's going to get us through, Lord willing, these 13 verses. And so I would say that if there are questions that you have, and there certainly is background that's very relevant to this passage, that you may need to go online and revisit those things. If you have some questions, I'd encourage you to do that. Of course, if you still have them, you can shoot them over to me. We will have a Q&A session coming up soon. But as I said, only 13 verses, except uh, you would think that um, in 13 we wouldn't cover much, but it's very important, very relevant study, and we've taken our time with it. 1986, Billy Graham published a devotional book titled Unto the Hills. I was reading the June 6th entry, and it went like this, quote, in Mark 7, 21 through 23, Graham says, Jesus indicated man's biggest problem was a heart problem. He said, verse 21, from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. Deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Billy Graham pointed out that the greatest need, quote, in our great cities at this moment is evangelism. He went on to say in the devotional, the Apostle Paul stood at the heart of the pagan, secular, immoral, and violent Corinth. Uh, Corinthian city and said, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them that are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Graham comments and he says, the uh, the proclamation of the gospel is still the desperate need of men today. We're never going to reverse the moral trends without a spiritual awakening and we're never going to have a spiritual awakening until the cross of Christ is central in all our teaching, preaching and practice. Graham says, David Brainerd, in his journal of his life and work among the American Indians said, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified, and I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as sure and inevitable fruit of the other. The devotional goes on to point out, Dorothy Sarah says, we have been trying for several centuries to uphold a particular standard of ethical values which derive from Christian dogma, while gradually dispensing with the very dogma which is the sole foundation for those values. She says, if we want Christian behavior, then we must realize that Christian behavior is rooted in Christian belief. 
Graham finishes up by saying, as Spurgeon pointed out, there are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. And I think Graham's point in his devotional is not lost on us as we look at the Corinthian church and Paul's comments in chapter 5, verse 1, I draw your attention there, where he says it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. And as we've seen, that sense that he says that is it's a general and continuing report about the church that there's immorality among you. And that's not good. And when I celebrate the cross and the death of Christ in behalf of sin, I can't go out and sin and really be truly focusing on Christ. If I'm glad that he died for me, if I'm concentrating on his paying for my sin, I'll not be overtly and uh, going out and committing sins for which he himself has died. I think that's a point. And so a preoccupation with Christ and the cross is its own deterrent to sin. And so Paul points out that there was this pride involved in their attitude concerning this immorality. And he says to them, you should not being going along saying, oh, isn't our church so great? Uh, look how accommodating we are. Look how we don't need your involvement here, Paul, because we have our own opinions or, or whatever it was they're saying. Or look how uh, forgiving we are because this person is here. And you know, you can imagine how many churches perhaps are caught up in this very identical situation. They're saying, boy, you know, the church is really growing. Boy, the church is, God is really blessing. We're doing this. We're doing that. And, and all the gifts of the Spirit are here. And, and there's a wonderful thing. And, and all this is happening. If Paul were around, he'd He'd say, yeah, and, and there's immorality in your congregation, and, and uh, there's immorality in your church, and, and there you go, Paul says, you know, just puffed up, going along in some kind of spiritual bliss when you're not even dealing with a cancer that threatens to destroy the internal work of the church and the cumulative witness of everyone. So I think as we have Paul interacting with the modern church, I think we have a whole different dynamic going on, perhaps, and perception that we have missed. And so it's a serious situation, and as... Uh, uh, Alex was singing today, that's why I was so moved knowing what we were going to talk about. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Help us to know what it is exactly that we're doing that's not consistent with the Word, shining that bright light on it. And so, it's a serious situation. We've been taking our time with this study because this is a very important, very serious study, a mature study, uh, loaded with pertinent information, relevant themes, and I think that you've seen that in the last two messages as we've been together studying. So as you turn to 1 Corinthians 5, 6, if you're new with us, then I would say because I haven't said this in a while, that we believe that God's people are best served by God's word. And a lot of people say that, but not a lot of people actually do that. Um, and, and that means that we believe that just teaching the word of God is the most important thing, and then answering these questions, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And so in order to accomplish that, we just go through verse after verse, chapter after chapter, book after book, and we uh, cross-reference to make sure that we're accurately, handle, accurately handling it and then cutting a straight cut, as 2 Timothy 2.15 says, so that when we're all done, and we can put it all back together and it fits. So today, if you're new, we're right in the middle of this study in chapter 5, uh, where Paul is dealing with the purity of the church. And in the first five verses, Paul has identified the problem. The problem is they had unrepentant immorality in the church, and he's given them the proper attitude. It wasn't pride, it was mourning. They should have been mourning because that was the case. And then he's given them the proper response, and the response we saw last time was removing the unrepentant member from the membership and placing them into the realm of Satan's influence, which is the world. So taking them out of the protection of the church and into the realm of the world. And he's given them the purpose for that type of discipline, and that was, as we saw last time, the destruction of the physical body with a purpose of restoration to godly living. And so uh, we saw that, you know, that could mean sickness, it could mean disease, it could mean anxiety, uh, pressure, problems in the family, physical pain could also be included, a number of other things certainly could be in there, all of that to bring about change 
It could be very similar to 1 Corinthians 11 that we looked at, that we look at often when we take the Lord's table, where Paul tells the church some of you were weak, sick, and a number sleep because of the way they came and approached the table of the Lord. So many examples. We looked at lots of them last time. We won't go back and go all over that. But So Paul writes this chapter to deal with uh, the consequences of their sin, their immorality, and to bring the church back to the place of purity. Now let's read, if you would pick up in verse 6, and we'll go all the way through verse 13. Lord willing, we'll go, uh, we'll, we'll get all of those in today. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Verse 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9. I wrote to you, in my letter, not to associate with immoral people. Verse 10, I did not all, at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Verse 11, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, we covered a number of things that led up to that, so I think the fruit really falls off the tree at this point because we understand where Paul's going. Let's look at the reason, I think, that we can see behind Paul's instructions. It really becomes the principle for the church. Uh, Paul leads up to the principle in this first part of verse 6, and he's going to use an Old Testament illustration in order to make his point. But he first says, verse 6, look there with me, your boasting, he says, is not good. And then uh, he's just revisiting this topic. We've seen him visit this topic of pride a number of times as we've worked our way all the way through from chapter 1. This is bad news, Paul says. Uh, I'm sure there are Christians probably perhaps who go around thinking they're really doing great because they never really bother to examine uh, the reality of their life and put themselves in the searchlight of the scriptures as we were talking about earlier, really getting down on their knees and spending a little time with the Holy Spirit listening to what he may disclose to them. And again, I think this is part and parcel of every Christian life. I think that, uh, that fits its way into every church. Your boasting's not good. We're, never, we're not really getting down to what the Lord would really want. We're not really looking at the scripture and, and shining that bright light on ourselves and uh, examining those, those uh, sins that are so camouflaged in our life. And I think that's part of every Christian life that, that needs to happen. It's not happening here in Corinth. And so Paul says your boasting's not good. And that's what makes the passage, I think, so relevant for today. They think, you know, everything's fine with them. They're, they're in great spiritual shape. It really illustrates a basic point that we need to think about, and that's being careful uh, that you properly evaluate your spiritual condition because it's easy to just look at yourself very biased and evaluate yourself uh, with all plus signs and never face any of the facts. And so Paul's just really bringing reality right to bear on them. So Paul says to the church of Corinth, your boasting's not good. In other words... Uh, what are you boasting about? You're, you're not dealing with the real issue here. You've missed the whole point, and yet you're sitting there boasting. And, then the and here the real issue is uh, the reason for the appropriate action. You can find this in your notes. Do you not know, he says, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? That just kind of flies right in the face of the obvious response from the Corinthian church, which is, as he says, put this person out for the destruction of the flesh that the soul could be saved. The first reaction from the church typically is, well, what they really need now is the church. That's what they really, really need. But the issue really isn't for Paul what they need. The issue for Paul is what does the church need? And his, his point is, is very relevant for us 
Uh, and so he said, he gets to the real point here, the real reason for all this action. He says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough? And it's really simply speaking about a negative influence and permeation. That's what it's speaking about. In those days, if you read about the dough in, in uh, older days, which is still common today, particularly with those who are into the whole foods, someone would make bread, they'd get the dough all ready, they'd put it together, they'd put it into whatever receptacle that they were going to bake it in during, during that process, and then while they're getting ready to do that, they pull off a little piece of the dough, it's held back, that little piece is rolled into a ball, put into a sugar water bath, and it's just left there. And uh, that was leaven. And the reason for that is that over a period of time, that would uh, sour the water, and then it would be taken, and then when they started to make new bread, they'd take a little piece of that, and they put it in the new bread, and they mix it all up, and so you had this fermentation process going, it permeate the new bread, uh, get it ready to rise, and this is leaven. And there were other ways, of course, to do that, and in ancient times they used grain and wine and did the same thing, but the basic idea is that there's uh, a fermentation going on, a leavening going on, and uh, it has this idea of uh, fermentation because it is, it is uh, fermenting, for, uh, breaking down, and sometimes leaven is used to illustrate in the scriptures sin, and that's how it is here. But sometimes it's used uh, in other ways, but it's used here as sin because sin corrupts. Lots of examples. We won't, we'll look at all of them, but just in particular, just two chapters of Luke, we see in both sides of the way that it's used. Luke chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So there you see Jesus using it in a negative connotation. He says, listen, there's some leaven going on here. That's hypocrisy, saying one thing, doing something else. Don't be like that. Don't have that leaven. And then on the other side, in Luke 13, verse 18, we see the exact opposite way it's used. He says, so he was saying... Uh, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Here it is. Uh, it is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. So there it's cast in a positive light. But the same issue is there. Uh, it's, it's permeation and influence. And in Paul's uh, illustration here in 1 Corinthians, it's a negative permeation and influence. But either way, the main emphasis is the same. So Paul, Paul brings the illustration home, and he goes to the next verse, and he says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. And so he's, he's using an illustration that everyone would know, and he wants them to understand what's actually going on in the church and why it's so important to identify what's going on and make sure that it's remedied. Now, he's simply saying, look, at your life, you know, at the pattern of your life, a certain style of life, you had that when you came into Christ, you came out of this, this pool, if you will, of uh, immorality used in worship, you're now this little island in the middle of this big pool, and this is supposed to be an island of purity, and you had this in your own life, and you, you don't want anything from that old life as a starter lump in this new bread. Uh, like a little chunk left over from the old life. Don't bring that into your new life, Paul says. Eleven here relating to the sins of your former life in this illustration. So if you're a new Christian, you're supposed to be an unleavened uh, Christian. In other words, unleavened by the world. That is, you don't have any leftover from the old life as a starter into your new life. Your new life is unleavened. And I think that cancer, as well, I was just thinking some illustrations perhaps that help us understand. Cancer makes uh, the illustration as well as anything. Typically when someone is diagnosed with cancer, a course of treatment would include, you know, removing the cancer. There's an earnestness there to do that, of course, and so it may be removed in an operation or a procedure or radiation. It could be used, uh, chemotherapy targets the cancer cells, and because the understanding is if the cancer's left there, it spreads, and so there's an earnestness in the treatment, and so when we hear, you know, they got it all or something to that effect, 
that's a time for celebration because it's preserving the rest of the body uh, from being afflicted by the disease. And unrepentant sin is the same way. It sits like cancer cells that will spread. So Paul says in verse 7, clean out the old leaven. And so he's, uh, we're going to get that same earnestness here, still talking about negative influence and negative permeation into the life of the church. So we get this picture from Paul that illustrates a very serious point. And here it is. If you let unrepentant immorality continue in the church, it's going to permeate the whole church. That's Paul's issue. That's why he uses the whole leaven and a lump of dough illustration. And that's why he says, do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And when he says, do you not know, it's, it's like he's saying, everybody knows this, that a little leaven leavens a whole lump. This is common knowledge to you, and now I'm making the application, he says, to the church at Corinth. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So, you don't want any of that stuff from your former life permeating the church. So then he says in verse 7, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. There's no place in the church then for any of the old patterns, immorality or whatever else that pattern may be. And he'll list some more things that we're going to see in just a minute. Uh, but the idea of leaven is the idea of this permeation of evil, evil in the past, held over, integrated into the present, uh, evil from my former life put into the church uh, in the context or put into my new life if you look at it from a personal application, uh, whatever it is, that's something left over and it's not supposed to be there. So he's saying to the Corinthians then, I know, your life, I know what your life was like before. I was there. I planted the church. I was there with you 18 months. I know all the stuff you did. I know how you lived in the pagan immorality. I know how you worshipped. In your new life, there's no place for the dragging over this little piece of starter dough and letting that permeate your new life because that's exactly what it's going to do. Now, this takes us back to the Old Testament and, and we look at this last part of verse 7. He says, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. You can look there in your Bible if you would. And, and Paul is teaching them a lesson. And the Jews would know the story from Exodus 12. The Gentiles perhaps would have been taught to uh, this story by Paul, perhaps by Apollos, because Apollos was a great order and understood the Old Testament, and so perhaps he went through all of this with them. So Paul's just bringing this to mind, assuming knowledge that they know uh, here. Uh, Paul's recalling the, uh, this important day in Israel's history, and his point is this. When God prepared the way for Israel to leave Egypt, he poured out all the plagues, you know this, and, and pre prepared them for the last one. He gave them a feast. It was called a Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was for seven days. They were part of Egypt. They were integrated then into the life of Egypt. But God said, it's time for separation. The final act of separation came on Passover. So they put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, and we talked about that before. Not only saved them, uh, you know, Israel, uh, Jews look at it as saving them from the wrath of Pharaoh. It actually was saving them from God's wrath. Everybody who had the, the blood on the lintel and the doorpost was saved from God's wrath. So we make that clear. The sacrifice of the lamb, the blood poured out, all of that. Uh, the angel of death then passed over. The angel of death slaughtered the firstborn of all who didn't have the blood on the doorpost, and his wrath was poured out. And it created this catalyst for them to go, and Pharaoh just says, get out. And so the sacrifice of the lamb, the blood poured out, saved from the wrath of God, inasmuch then as the sacrifice of Christ, the perfect lamb, his blood poured out, and applied to the sins of all who confess and believe, saves every believer from the wrath of God. And that's the whole point he's trying to draw in for them. And in a sense, as the Passover lamb provided the means for the Israelites to be separated from Egypt, Christ then, the true lamb of God, provides the means for the separation of all who believe from the world and death and hell and fits them for the real promised land to come. And that's the point Paul's drawing on. He knows that they know this, so he's making the physical connection for them so they can put it all together. So, 
when those Israelites were to leave, it says they were to take only unleavened bread. Not only that, they were supposed to spend seven days, the entire week prior, to purge it all from their house. And so when the time came to leave, Exodus 12, 34 says this. This is remarkable. So the people took the dough before it was leavened. Why? Because there wasn't any leaven in the house. They'd taken seven days to purge it all out. The dough was made to rise in the morning so they could have bread, but it didn't have any leaven in it. With their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. So that's exactly what happened. They departed from Egypt without any of the remnant of the fermentation, permeation of symbolic sin, but reality, Egypt, going with them. So the separation was clean and also symbolic. They were not permitted to carry even one little ball of leftover dough outside of the land of Egypt. God didn't want any remnant of Egyptian life carried into the new land that the children of Israel were going to inherit. So the lump of sourdough then represented the old life, and the bread that you made in Egypt, don't bring it and put it into the new bread of the new life in the new land. Understand? So that's Paul's illustration. That's what he's bringing in. And that's the point Paul's bringing to their mind here. And the, e- and, and, and the meaning we can take from Paul's explanation, the leaven here in 1 Corinthians then, represents something of the old life taken and put into the new. So Paul says, don't you understand this? The old le- life will leaven the new life. If you leave the sin unpurged, it's going to permeate the new loaf. When you leave Egypt, you leave with no leaven. Search your house, make sure you're not carrying any inadvertently in some bag somewhere, find every bit of it, get rid of it. It's a symbol of the old pattern, it's a symbol of the old life, it's a symbol of the old place. We're going to leave in the church, make sure it's not here. So he says, verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may have, it may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. So the death of Christ, who is our Passover lamb, made the separation possible. An unleavened church, controlled by the Holy Spirit, continues that separation. We don't want any of the old leaven from the world dragged into the church. He died to separate us from sin. He died to separate us from the system. He died to free us from the bondage to sin, to release us to the life of holiness. So then why would they want leaven from the old life integrated into the new? And then just to follow up that illustration, look at verse 8. He says, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So therefore, just means in light of everything you now know that the Lord wants, in light of everything that you now know that's connected to your time in Egypt and the purging out of the leaven, in light of all of that, because you know that, let us celebrate the feast. The Greek verb hetortazo, present active subjunctive. Now that's a, that's a great tense, and I want to explain that to you. Literally it would be, there's some contingency there. Would that we, that's the understanding, would that we celebrate The feast is representative of the new separated life in Christ, corporately joined together in the church. And the contingency is this, beloved, and you know this, as I do from my own life. The contingency is, you can't do it with the old leaven. It's not possible for you to celebrate the feast with the old leaven. They can't bring the world in. Particularly then, they can't do it and also be proud of the unrepentant immorality that's going on in the Corinthian church with the prideful attitudes and the personal preferences and all the stuff that's uh, gone along with all of that. So it says, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. So we understand what the old leaven is, right? That's the life before. So the the life habits before you came to Christ, he says to the church there. So don't bring that in. Their new life in Christ is not going to work with any of that. And if they're uh, not a holy church, they're not going to have much to say to the world, then are they, beloved? I mean, really, if that's the, if the, 
if the relationship of the church to the world is that they know that immorality goes on and they're unchecked, that doesn't give you much to say. And so Paul says, listen, you're already known that way, so it's not possible for you to celebrate this feast because you've already incorporated a piece of leaven from the old life. So they lose their purpose. And then he says, not just the old life, but also the leaven of malice. Kakia, the best described as ill will, the leaven of malice. And uh, it's a permeating discontent, and it's manifested in conversations and actions. And that's exactly what described the Corinthian church, right? A discontent, uh, an an ill will, and it always makes its way into conversations, it makes its way into actions. And then it says the leaven of, of not just malice, but of wickedness. Poneria, not pornaria, but poneria, permeating like all sin, nasty disposition. So that manifests itself in any kind of wrongdoing. So that's the, the, the threshold, if you will, to wrongdoing. So Paul says, listen, you can't bring in the old leaven of a life steeped in immorality and mix it into this bread, which is the church. And while you're at it, he says, you can't bring in this leaven of ill will, which just is expressed in your conversations with one another. And that's what Paul was talking about earlier. You've got these factions and you just kind of do your conversations uh, behind the scenes and just create some problems. And you can't mix in the leaven of a nasty disposition, which you express in your pride and your contempt of me and your discord and all of that stuff, Paul says. And there's going to be some other things marked as leaven in just a minute. Paul's not done. But he says the reason then for discipline, Paul shows us then, is that you don't allow unrepentant sin to influence and permeate an unleavened bread of the church. Because it's going to ferment in the church, and that's a process of decay and corruption in this illustration, which draws the lifeblood right out of the church. This new lump of the church, there's no place for things from the old life. Uh, they're going to have to be dealt with. They're going to have to be dealt with strongly and sternly and lovingly at the same time if we're going to be obedient to God because that preserves the church from permeating evil, and that's what God wants, and he wants a holy church. He wants a healthy church. Now, we're going to kind of turn a corner here, and we're going to see the limit to the scope of all of this, and Paul kind of changes his, his, uh, his approach, and he kind of segues with this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So once again, and we've talked about this before, this is a letter we don't have. Uh, This is perhaps uh, the Lord didn't see fit to preserve it for us, uh, so we don't get it. But obviously, it's a letter Paul sent. He references it to them. I've already talked to you about this. Don't associate. Now, that's a double compound Greek verb. And the root means to mingle together. And it's based on the idea of mixing compounds together to form a new chemical. That's its its root-based understanding. And the other two prefixes mean to be beside someone and to hold company with someone. Now, in the Greek language, as you add prefixes, you add strength. And what we have here is we have a very strong verb. And this verb is present, middle, infinitive. So here's the idea, okay? The idea is from Paul, I told you to begin as your new norm, a disassociation in any fashion, so not mingling, not beside, not holding company with those that are unrepentantly immoral. So he wants to make sure they understand how clear he is here. Look, I wrote to you, he says, in an earlier epistle, to let it be the case that not on any condition at all, at any time, are you to have anything to do with immoral people. And beloved, I would just say that's a long ways from where the modern church is, isn't it? Because we have this idea that tolerance is spirituality. We have this idea that we are putting the person above what the church says, see? And so you have all these churches, they never take care of this. And this is a real problem because of the strength of the verb that Paul says. I told you not to have anything whatsoever to do with, no matter what, no mingling, no holding company with those who are unrepentant, immoral, immoral, unrepentantly immoral. 
And I wrote this to you in an earlier epistle, so let it be the case. Not on any condition at any time to have anything to do with immoral people. You're not to mix yourself up with them in any way. That's the literal meaning of the verb. Now we're going to see the scope here in just a minute. Paul's going to clarify some things. And it really has two parts. The first part, it's limited on one side, and, and the other part is very personal and encompassing, all-encompassing, really, on the other side. Look at verse 10. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have had to go out of the world. Let's stop right there. Paul says, listen, if that's what you think, you misunderstood me. You think I meant for you not to associate with the world. No. You're to be salt and light in the world. We're going to see that in just a minute. Besides, you'd have to leave the world, you'd have to leave the planet to not associate with the people of the world who are like this. That's not what I was talking about. And just as a footnote, Paul pretty much sums up the world right here in those statements. The sin of fornication is the sin against the body. Covetousness, extortion is the sin against others, uh, where you're regarding uh, others as objects to be exploited. And idolatry is a sin against God, where you're substituting his worship for the worship of something else. So it's all kind of wrapped up in there in just a general sense. Uh, that's the world. That just describes the world. I'm not telling you to not associate with the world. You're going to have to if you're going to be salt and light. In fact, Matthew chapter three or 5, verse 13, Jesus' explicit teaching here, he says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be trampled under the foot by men. Verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So obviously, you're in the world, correct? You're in amongst those who are unsaved. You're a light, you're salt. And let your light shine in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. Make sure that you're salty, actually making a difference and preserving by what you do and what you say. So you're in the system, winning people that are caught in the system. That's Jesus' direct teaching. Not conformed to the system so much like the world inhabits that you can't, it can't tell the difference between you and the world. Okay, so you've got to be reigning your life in, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the whole Romans 12, 1 that we talked about. Not stamped in the world's image, but transformed by renewing your mind. In the middle of it, loving it, witnessing to the ones that God's put in your path. Now, just another quick illustration, and we'll move on. Uh, Philippians 2.14, this attitude Paul talked about. He says, do all things, this is great, do all things without grumbling, gone gusmos, that's secret muttering, that's behind the scenes murmuring, that's grumbling, otherwise known as gossip and negative talk between people. Okay, do all things without that, or disputing, dialogismos, that's uh, arguing, doubting one another, all of that kind of stuff. Do all things without either of those two things, and if you're acting in a way that avoid those things, so that, what? You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. So, or generation. So you're in the midst, you're avoiding those two things, you're going to show that yourself to be blameless and innocent, uh, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And so once again, clear teaching by Paul, clear teaching by Jesus. It's not that you're disassociating with the world, you're pulling yourself out of the world, not associating with anyone with the habits of the world who are not believers. That's not what Paul's talking about at all, and it's not what Jesus talked about, and it's not the instruction Paul gave in Philippians. Get in the middle of the world. Don't grumble, don't complain, don't argue, don't doubt, and you'll prove yourself to be above reproach. And then you'll really be doing something in the world. And I would say that a lot of believers just undermine all their power uh, in doing something in the world because those two things are present in their life on a regular basis. So they're not proving themselves to be uh, uh, lights in the world. They're not proving themselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. The people are looking at the church and thinking, man, you just act just like the world. 
I have a better circumstance in, my, in the public arena in my office than what's going on sometimes among Christians. So listen, if your phone's ringing, pick it up. If you do all of that, you'll really be doing something in the world. Now, here's the scope, okay? And this is super important. Here's the scope. The disassociation doesn't apply to the unredeemed, okay? And we just made that clear, I think. That point is, is obvious now. You must associate with them in order to fulfill the Great Commission. And Paul gives some qualifying remarks in verses 12 and 13, we're going to look at it in a minute, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? And then he says, but those who are on the outside, God judges. So, you're not bringing discipline on those who are in the world. You're not bringing discipline on those who are not saved. They're doing what the unredeemed do. So, be salt, be light, and God will judge them if they remain in their unredeemed state. And for you and the world, it's not no contact. It's Romans 12:1. don't be conformed. That's the issue. So, what did you mean, Paul? Now look at verse 11. So, we'll get the other side of the scope. But actually, I wrote to you, not to associate with any so-called brother. Now, Paul puts that caveat in there. It just means, you know, only God knows if he's really saved. But if he's calling himself a believer, that's what Paul's talking about. So if they call themselves a believer, whether or not they're really saved or not, God's the one who knows that. If they call themselves a believer, any so-called brother, if he's an immoral person or covetousness or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. And that's obviously not an exhaustive list, is it? Because two weeks ago we looked at an even more exhaustive list of those who were to be put out if they were unrepentant, and we saw all of that. That's why I say all of this has much connection with previous messages, and there's not poss- it's not possible for us to go back every time and look at all that. So here's the scope. If he calls himself a believer, and these sins are present in his life in an unrepentant manner, cut yourself off from him. And of course that means what we've been looking at, not only personally, and that's the hard part, isn't it? But also um, in the church. Same strong words we saw earlier. And the idea is from Paul, I told you to begin as your new norm, a disassociation in any fashion, so not mingling and not beside them and not holding company with those that are unrepentantly immoral. And then he adds the other things here as well. And beloved, that's going to have an application to your personal associations. Because I get a lot of questions from people that say, well, I have a roommate who is, you know, he calls himself or she calls himself a believer, but they're living with their boyfriend or they're living with their girlfriend, what do I do? Or I'm in a Bible study, and one of the people who comes to the Bible study who calls himself a believer uh, is living with an open immorality and fornication with uh, their boyfriend. What do I do? And I think that the application is pretty straightforward here, isn't it? That you go, as Matthew 18 says, because it's a chapter and verse sin issue, and you present it to them, and you ask them to turn, and with mourning, because it's so difficult for you to do it, and because you know it's so hard for them for their future, and it's placed them in a very difficult situation, and then you go with two or three who have also witnessed it, not you've told them about it, but they've witnessed it, and then you go then uh, before the whole church, and that would be your group or whatever it happens to be, but you go through that process, and then you have to disassociate, and that's the difficult part, isn't it? Because right away we say what they they really need is a friend. Yes, they do. But what they really need more is for you to be the best friend possible and say, listen, we can't associate, and here's why. And there's repercussions for this issue. And so it has to be uh, very difficult. You have to wrestle with all of that. And here's the thing, of course. There's a method of Paul's discourse here because the list he just gave, this list of any so-called brother, uh, it's an immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. There's a method to his discourse because really this is, 
This is going to really cause a stir in this congregation in Corinth. Why? Well, because every one of those things is dealt with in this letter. So there's people just like that already in the church. So Paul's already foreshadowing a lot of the things he's going to talk about in chapters to come. And so he just adds those things in there. And uh, there's lots of people doing these things. They had an immoral person right here in chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, they were idolaters, and so uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 9, 5, they had a problem with covetousness. Uh, we saw also in 1 Corinthians 10, they reviled Paul, uh, that's the word for slander, to slight someone's character then, either to their face or behind their back. Uh, they did that, and Paul's going to, that's a reviler. Uh, they were known as drinkers. Uh, they'd get buzzed before the Lord's table, and then they would come, and they were doing it in an inappropriate manner, of course, and if you're getting buzzed while you're drinking, as we talked before, you're already in sin, so that's a problem. And they were trying to swindle each other and take each other to court, 1 Corinthians 6. So he's already dealing with these issues. He's going to deal with them coming up. He's just foreshadowing them. It's not an exhaustive list. He says, listen, if this is the case, then you need to disassociate with these people. And Paul knows that God wants a healthy church. And you can't have a healthy church if those things are present. So he says, look, you find all these people and you give them the opportunity to see the truth and you give them an opportunity to turn and repent. And if they won't do it, you put them out and you don't have anything to do with them. And at this point, of course, they probably would have had about a handful of people left if they'd really done it. And I'm sure people said to Paul, but isn't that the opposite of church growth? And uh, I guess Paul would probably say that really is really part of your growth if your growth is on the right foundation. If you're building with gold, silver, and costly stone and not wood, hay, and stubble, as it were, in the church and in the personal life. If the bread is to be without leaven, if we're going to celebrate the feast without leaven, then Paul says, then the unrepentant cheat or the drunkard or the slanderer or the immoral person has to be put out. And remember, Paul says this is a mournful thing. This is not a prideful thing. This is where there's going to be a lot of mourning going on here. And, of course, if you're doing it early, it's not permeating the entire church. See, But what had happened is sin had permeated the entire church, and they had all these different kinds of issues going on. So the goal is restoration. And it isn't that we, we don't love people and we don't love these people. We do. It's just from Paul's perspective, we're supposed to love the purity of the bride more. And if we allow it to persist, then Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough? And that's exactly what had happened in Corinth. And then Paul finishes up with some reminders. Look at verse 12, if you would. I'm going to wrap up. For what have I to do with judging others? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Outsiders, rather. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? And Paul says to them, you know, I'm not talking about outsiders. I don't have a responsibility for them other than, of course, the one to evangelize. So we have that responsibility, but not in judging and, and carrying out discipline on them. So the answer to the first question is, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Nothing. That's the answer. He says, we are supposed to be taking care of the inside of the house. So... The answer to the second question, do you not judge those who are within the church? And the answer to that question is, yes, you're supposed to be. Yes. Now, Paul isn't saying that everybody's to be perfect. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a church, would there? The standard is simple. Ephesians 5.10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what you're looking for. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what you want to do in your own life. That's what you want to see other people do. Colossians 1.10 says that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's our, that's our goal, obviously. We're not perfect. We haven't arrived there. Paul's request to the church of Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you are, ought to walk, 
And please, God, just as you actually do walk, so you're desiring to please God, and you're following the instructions, he says, from the word, that you excel still more. So that uh, lifting the bar higher and desiring to do better and, and making that the attitude uh, prevalent in the life. Because, you know, not even Paul considered himself as having arrived. So none of us do as well. I mean, in Philippians, remember 3.13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I'm not arrived yet, Paul says. I haven't, I haven't hit that mark where everything's perfect in my life. And in fact, in Romans chapter 7, remember he said, I find a law at work in my body and my members at war with the law in my mind, which is that law of God. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Well, the Lord will, eventually, won't he? Because that's where it has its problems, isn't it? Right in the flesh. So he says, brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid a hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, verse 14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I keep on going on up, and I'm not looking back and seeing every time I fail. That would be really preoccupying. But we move forward, and Paul says, I haven't arrived, but I'm moving forward. See, So a believer doing what he should do in the church, according to Paul, is a believer who, who wants to live for Christ, and learn what's pleasing to the Lord. It's a believer who is, wants to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, to bear fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a believer who, who, um, who has read what the word has to say and is walking in that way and desires to do it more and lifting the bar up. It's, it's a believer who uh, has that attitude that they haven't laid hold of it yet, but they are desiring to lay hold of it. It's all of those things, see? So you want to live a pure life, you're pursuing those things. And then verse 13, Paul says, but those who are outside... Uh, God judges. And that's pretty important, see, because those on the outside, as we said, are those outside the faith. See? And that would probably have included the woman in question here. That's what we said earlier in our study. Remember? There's two people involved in this messy situation. But it, Paul doesn't talk about her and say, we're going to put her out or whatever. She's not a believer, likely. Lives in, in the community. So he's not, he's just saying, listen, God's going to judge those on the outside. We're not talking about them. And I think that's the whole point, Paul, bring, why he brings it in. Because they're thinking, well, what about the woman? What about the woman? She's involved. Yes, but those on the outside, God judges. So I think you can make that connection. So God will judge all those who remain in their sins. So here's the thing. Be a witness. Be a light. Be compassionate. You know, let it be intolerable to you that any remain in our community that haven't heard the gospel. Be about that. See? But as it relates to the church, Paul says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. It's always been God's standard to remove the unrepentant wickedness from among his people because of the negative influence and permeation that makes. And so Paul draws uh, those, that passage, remove the wicked man from among yourselves, just from the instruction he gave in Deuteronomy 17 and on about his people in the land and what to do with those who uh, wouldn't obey uh, the law God had handed down through Moses. It's always been God's standard. It's still God's standard. Remove unrepentant wickedness from among the people because there's always a negative influence and a negative permeation. So... Paul's identified the problem in the church, unrepentant immorality, and a broader scope that we see in verse 11. He's given them the proper attitude. It's mourning with sorrow over sin. We don't want to see it inside the church. He's given the proper response, which is removing the unrepentant member from membership, placing him into the realm of Satan's influence, which is the world. And he's given them the proper uh, purpose of this type of discipline, and that's the destruction of the, of the physical body with a purpose of restoration to godly living. And, the re and then the real issue the reason for this, all this action, the reason for doing these things that are so hard, uh, it's simply to purge out negative influence and permeation in the church because a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So, we're done with verse 13. Difficult passage, no doubt. 
uh, for you to hear, for me to teach. So what do we do, where do we take this from here? Besides the doctrine that we've learned, the truth that we have to understand and incorporate into our lives. Here's the thing, I think, two things, really. First, as an individual believer, we have to be sensitive to the purity of our own life. Shedding that light brightly from the scriptures on our own life, desiring to be conformed to these things we saw in Ephesians 5.10, learning what's pleasing to the Lord, Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, please him in all respects, uh, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, Paul in Thess Thessalonica, you've heard what I've taught, you're already living it, do it all still more, let that be uh, your preoccupation, okay? And then the understanding is that we have to be sensitive to the lives of the people around us because we're not just here to give a little sermonette and hope you feel better and then you go out and you just kind of, you know, live your life however you want. We're here on a life basis. You're here on a life basis. You're here on a one another basis, see? That's what membership is, isn't it? It's a one another thing. It's not I'm a member of Berean Baptist Church, I never come. It's I'm a member and I do the one another's here. That's the one another's. And so obviously as we saw at the very beginning of this study, unless the church is watching out, you're not going to see it. If the Lord makes it visible, though, you, you deal with it in a personal manner, compassionate, mournful manner. So it's for the, certainly for the benefit of the individual and for the health of the church. And so I'd say if those two things are your preoccupation, then I think you take away the correct, the correct perspective as we planted all this in the midst of the cross-references we've had. And as we do those things, then we're going to see the church operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to have opportunity to lead people to Christ and disciple them and as that happens, the name of Christ is honored because this is his bride and this is what he wants. See. All right, beloved, we're out of time. We've got a, a number of, of announcements and some fun stuff coming up, so we're going to close in prayer. As you bow your head, if you would, just right where you are, just for a couple of seconds, uh, I would just, you know, verse 13 just came to my attention, you know, again this week as I was going over and I just thought, you know, you do... I want to make sure you understand, if you're sitting there in your seat, please don't do anything else and listen, just, just be introspective. If you're on the outside, God's going to judge you. Do you understand that? And he's not wrong to do it. He's holy, he made the world, he made the rules by which the world lives, and his rules are such that if you sin, you're under a curse, if you, leave in that, in a, if you stay in that unrepentant manner, you will be judged. God will judge you for sure. Understand that is a set time in the future as sure as it were happening right now, okay? Out there, a little ways, God has, we've, we understand from Acts, given all judgment to Christ. And so this one who has paid your sin debt and will receive you and pay for your sin and give you eternal life and salvation will someday, if you stay in the state that you're in, be your judge. The one who paid for you will be your judge. Beloved, understand that. And so I plead with you, well, don't try to make me feel scared. I, listen, if I were in your shoes, I would be terrified. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, isn't it? So I would say that, again, plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you really believe that. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And Scripture says, if you do those things, you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. In that symbolism, just like the Hebrew children were saved from God's wrath in Egypt and delivered over to the promised land, you will be saved in a very real sense from your sin and the guilt of your sin. Delivered into salvation, delivered into a, uh, your right place with the Lord, what he desires for you all along, adopted as his child. If you desire to pray that prayer today, you can do it right where you sit. You say, Heavenly Father, I've sinned, 
I recognize my own sin. I know that I haven't lived for you. I also recognize your right to judge because you rule the world, you made it, you made the rules governing it, and in your compassion you've given us Jesus Christ as our substitute, the one who took our sin debt. So you can say, for as many has received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, all that believe on his name. What a blessing that is and an opportunity. Father, we, I recognize that, and I want to be your child. So I confess my sin to you. It's not a secret, and that you can do right now, beloved. You know what they are. And certainly the sin of disobedience and rebellion are at the top of the list. Refusing to hear the gospel, refusing to receive the free gift of salvation, free to you, costly to God. Bad news, you're under a curse. Good news, for God's provided his own son as a substitute for you. And in confessing your sin and believing what God has done through Christ, that he gave him, and that he is in charge of all things, and he raised him from the dead, you can be saved. If you confess that, you've come into a right relationship. And beloved, I would say before you even go another step, let us know you did that, will you? so very important that you get connected with other believers and disciples and understand that what's going on in your life, this new life that you have, is part of this process where other believers help you to walk in this way that you should walk and understand what you need to do. And the Lord can bring in his sanctifying work in you as you read his word and rejoice in this new life. If you prayed that prayer, let us know that you prayed it. If, if you have been uh, brought along by the Holy Spirit to uh, confess other things and you'd like to share and you'd like somebody to, to pray with you, it'd be our joy to do that. Fill that out. Give that to me before you leave. It'd be my joy to pray for you and to, and to contact you and help you. It's our desire to help you grow. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word, even this most difficult passage, uh, which is so hard to preach, so hard to hear, because it just really uh, deals with the reality of the church today. Father, I pray, though, for Berean that we'll be the type of church modeled after what we see here, not leavened with the leaven of the old life, not leavened with the leaven of malice or the leaven of wickedness, but instead uh, an unleavened lump, not bringing in the old life, not bringing in the attitude, not bringing in the sin issues, that we might be used by you in power, that we might see fruit in our own life of salvation of others as we witness, we might see the fruit of discipleship we'll get have opportunity to do, and as the church grows, that you can be glorified. So we thank you for this pattern, uh, even in the midst of the sorrow that's there in Paul's heart. As he looks at the Corinthian church, he knows the Lord wants a healthy church, and he gives the pattern whereby they can become healthy. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll learn the lessons you'll have us learn, make the applications you desire for us to make. We pray this in the name of Jesus, your son. And for those who've come into salvation today, perhaps, uh, Lord, we're so grateful. And I know your angels, you told us, are rejoicing in heaven. And so, Lord, as we uh, move from here, uh, let this be just the beginning of a, a, a walk with you that uh, shows them the true meaning of discipleship and what it means to follow the one who gave himself, himself for us. And we give you praise today, all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.